Blog Talk Radio. One, two, test. Just ended. Just ended. Oh, it's, it's, we're live. I just got the delay. I heard myself. <laughs> okay. Test. So we're test. back. We apologize for Are the problems we we've had with the, with the interview, but I think we may have the technology figured out now. So we're gearing up. We've got another interview in about five minutes with Nick Atkins. Excited about that coming up. And uh, Nick's already been by once. Uh, we've been handing out a few pink socks, taking a few pictures, getting it up on Twitter, and inviting people to uh, our little meetup that, that Nick is hosting tonight uh, for those pink socks tribe members. So it all should be good now, and uh, we'll continue on with the show in just a second. back again and for those of you who would like to follow us on Twitter you can follow Greg at two the number two healthguru.com I am F S Goldstein G O L D S T E I N and Doug is at E Futurist. So again follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can keep up with us all around the country as we go to various conferences or comment on various health care issues, health IT issues, etc. And again Health Innovation Media, you can sign up to uh, listen to our shows. One is uh, Pop Health Week, and uh, that's at pophealthweek.com, where we interview folks in population health. And Health Innovation Media is also available for organizations and companies looking to uh, engage better in the digital health media space. So reach out to Greg uh, either through his uh, Twitter handle, you can also find us on LinkedIn, or through, um, through the website. And we'd be happy to talk to you about how we can help you do that as well. So I'm thinking we'll try the setting where we're doing stereo and it's not on me. That sounds great. And I think that may be set like that. Where is it? Thank you. Great. We'll 
see how that setting sounds. We All hope right. you get a good good listen to the show. And uh, we'll be gearing up in just a few minutes. We should be joined by Nick Atkins here in the live booth from Him 17. There, uh, everyone's coming through. Obviously, there are speakers going on. I think the keynote this morning was the CEO of IBM, and uh, we will be uh, walking around as well and looking at a number of these uh, booths. I've got a couple of population health systems I'm going to go look at. Um, I'd also like to see who's doing any unique analytics work as well, and um, and see if we can find some some new products to talk about that are uh, bringing a little bit of excitement and possibly some new ideas to healthcare. So we hope uh, if you've listened to other shows, you've enjoyed those. And um, as I said, we'll be doing a full schedule for the next three days uh, from 11 to 1 o'clock, streaming live. These will also all be recorded. Um, we're shooting high-definition video of these, and they'll be available on the Health Innovation Media website. So uh, post-show, please check for those. It'll take a little bit to get them all edited down, but those will also be available where you can watch our interviews and lo and behold, I see the man himself, Nick Atkins, is coming on over to the booth, and we'll get Nick in here and do a little interview. So, excited to see Nick. And, uh, so Nick, it's great to see you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Fred, hey brother, it's good to be here, it's man. Good to see Always you, man. good to see it's you. A, yeah. Just a few days ago, we saw you at a completely different location. In a rocket so, garden. In the rocket <laughs> garden at the NASA Kennedy Space Center. So I know you kind of got connected there. Tell us a little bit about how you got connected to, to the NASA stuff. You know, it's a crazy story um, and very serendipitous as most of life is, right, Fred? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good, watching this thing roll out. Um, on Twitter, a friend of mine is, is John McBride. And John, when I met him, he was living in Austin. He's early availability guy. Then he founded a company called Afoundria, which now um, ChartPath is now being offered at CSC over here. There was an acquisition mm-hmm. of that uh, <laughs> that company. Well, John's dad is an astronaut of all <laughs> things, right? And so, <laughs> about a year ago, he'd given his dad some some of these pink socks. And his dad, uh, Astro McBride, on Twitter, at Astro McBride, Captain John McBride, pilot on two shuttle missions. Incredible. In fact, his mission is the mission that flew the space telescope up, the Hubble. So they deployed the Hubble. They deployed the Hubble. Wow. Yeah. And he's totally, you know, Captain McBride's totally nicest man you're ever going to meet. He runs the whole Atlantis exhibit out at the Kennedy Space Center. And anyway, one, one time last year, he sent me a message. He says, Nick, you know, Captain Bryce says, would you like to come watch a, a rocket launch at, at Kennedy Space Center? Well, Fred, I'm going to tell you right now, when an astronaut asks you if you want to come watch a rocket launch, <laughs> you say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I flew from Portland to Orlando and, you know, drove out to the Space Center and, and got to watch a SpaceX launch uh, last year. Uh, went to the press conference, Elon Musk, and it was, yeah. the, it was that mission where they deployed the Falcon 9 had gone up and, and deployed a, an inflatable habitat right. that attached onto the International Space Station. It was also the beam the, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, what it was. Beam. And that was the, the first mission that, that SpaceX had had that was that, where they landed at sea on that platform. Yeah, they landed on the... Yeah. And so that was the one I, I saw. So that's that's how I got to got to know John and his dad, John, Captain McBride. And um, so, same thing. They said, hey, we, we hear you guys are going to be out here for hymns. It's going to be in Orlando, you know. How do you feel about coming to watch another rocket launch? Because there's going to be one about the time right. you're there. We're like, 
well, yes, sir, I would like to do that. So that's how we were there at, at the Kennedy Space Center walking around, you know, hanging out with them. And it was a true joy to run into you, a good surprise, and met your son. Yep. And, uh, you know, he's great. We love the Kennedy Space Center. Yeah. But that just goes to show, let's get to the pink sock. Yeah, okay. so, so, which <laughs> yeah. is awesome. So you just mentioned uh, Captain McBride has a pair of these pink socks. Mm-hmm. So a NASA astronaut is wearing them. I see tweets from the Netherlands, from all over the world now. It's just it's, taken uh, off. It's, it's, tell it's tell our amazing. audience a little bit about it. You know, what, what quite, your purpose is. Yeah, uh, it's quite amazing. I mean, we just started it as fun, really, uh, at HEMS 15 in Chicago. Andrew Richards and I, co-founders of the company back in Portland, we tried to get going. And we said, you know, before we go to this HEMS thing in Chicago in 15, I'm always wearing fun, funky socks because I wear a kilt all the time. And, and I've got this friend, she owns a sock company. And I said, there's going to be about 40,000 people walking around in suits at this conference in Chicago. Do you think, you know, I could get, get a deal on some socks. I'm going to pack them in my little backpack and walk around. Every time somebody says, Hey, you know, I like your socks. I'll give them some socks. And she goes, well, which ones do you want? I said, well, the crowd favorite, you know, it seems to be this pink mustache one. She goes, get out of here. <laughs> she has hundreds of fun, funky styles, right? Yes. You know, corgis, pugs, T-Rex, you know, astronaut socks, you name it. Um, and she goes, are you kidding? You know, I go, why? She goes, when we ordered those, the, the clerk added an extra zero. And instead of having oh 2,000 pair in the warehouse, I got 20,000 pairs of these socks. She goes, I'm totally overstocked, so I totally give you a deal, and you're helping me out. And, you know, so... That's what we did. We, you know, came rolling into Chicago that year with a bunch of pink socks and started handing them out. And then, and it was really know, about gifting, right? It's all about and gifting, connecting. yeah. You know, and and just meeting people and uh, seeing them smile and sharing space and just connecting, even just for that moment, uh, to, to to see somebody you know, smile, it's good. And so it just, you know, you know, Greg. I mean, obviously, uh, Greg Masters, two health guru on Twitter. You know, I think it's a toss-up, you know, probably a fist fight over whether it was him or Leonard Kish coined a phrase and said people that are wearing the pink socks are disrupting healthcare from the ground up. And, you know, everything I know about Twitter I learned from Greg. And he sat down with us. Uh, I think we even shared a car together. We had a pizza and some beer after him and shared a ride. And, and Greg was schooling me on how to use Twitter. <laughs> and uh, and I'm telling you, I mean, it's a it's it's just really a phenomena that how it's taken off, like you say, around the world. Just well, people. And what just, I found amazing is it's it it is at a core, it's about gifting and connecting and sharing with with an individual and and in a unique way, which creates an instant bond in a sense. And then you find that yeah. Let's now talk about healthcare. No. Let's figure out how we fix healthcare. And you suddenly have connected to somebody completely different that you didn't know, and there's something you can do there. Yep. It's, it's a, pretty it, amazing. It is. It's a law of attraction, right? So like attracts like. Uh-huh. And the people that are in the Pink Sox tribe who, who you know, show up at meetings or work conferences or other events wearing their Pink socks. I mean, they're making a statement saying, look, you know, I'm part of this tribe. I'm part of something that's that's bigger than myself. I'm part of something that's bigger than my company. And there's like-minded people all around the world from all different points along the delivery chain, you know, from whether patients, rad techs, lab techs, nurses, doctors, healthcare administrators, CEOs of global companies, everybody in between saying we're in this together. There's a, there's a common goal here that we're going to try to do something different and, and make, make the experience better. 
care about. Yeah, and it's just, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, we we meet the nicest people. We do. I mean, you and I are we sitting do. here with this big, goofy grins on our face, and the people that we interact with have the same smiles. I mean, and so it's it's a nice to share space with people who, uh, you know, even though healthcare may kind of be a little depressing and messy at times, there's people that see the good in the world, that see that, you know, it it's it's okay. And, yeah. and I think also it's also about the people that say, yes, we have these problems. We may have more problems in the future, less problems in the future, but the goal is we are going to find some way to fix some small piece of it, if we can, in our own way, or to come up with ideas to fix some small piece of it, or a company to fix some small piece Hashtag of it. Hashtag GSD. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> so. Absolutely. So, so anything you're seeing around here of interest? Any stuff? Yeah, you know, I'm really interested. I'm just just really hit the ground this morning. Things I'm really looking forward to to learning more about this year are blockchain and healthcare. I want to really see what's happening with AI. Uh-huh. There's some cool booths here that are showcasing some virtual reality tech, some AR, VR, MR tech, uh, using you know 3D spatial relativity, deep immersion um, stuff. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. I, I, I don't think we're going to hear that same drum beat that we may have heard the last few years. That, you know that technology's here. You know, I mean, it's it's not like it's some far off thing now. Right. And so, you know, I mean, so those topics, patient engagement, population health management, they're still big. But I think you know, from my forecast, I think what's going to emerge out of out of him's this year is we're going to see a lot of stuff about blockchain, a lot of stuff about. Um, virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and AI. So it's gonna gonna be so interesting. So Greg and I were having a little discussion to open the show and talking about this is stuff really gonna make a difference. You know, obviously there's been a whole bunch of this stuff around all these big EMR companies and something, and then at the end of the day, are you seeing the outcomes? So do you think some of these newer technologies may have a better opportunity to do some of that and really make some transformational changes, drop some costs? improve patient experience? I say yes to all of that. And, and the challenge is, you know, just looking around this, this conference center, and it's huge here. Uh, I don't, somebody told me the square footage, but I was like, what? Um, there's so much technology. I mean, and is it all going to make it? You know, it's, yeah. like, it's just like being in a startup, you know, it's, you know, it's like trying to, some kid playing sports thinking they're going to one day be on a, a pro team. I mean, the odds of, are just astronomical that everyone in here is going to be successful. You know, who are the big players, you know, who, who are going to be the, the disruptors that are going to come out of this? I, I don't know, but I mean, that's what we're here for, right? We're going to find out. Right. So, and that's, that's part of the excitement. Well, fantastic. It'd be cool to see if you come up with anything you think is really cool tech. I'd love to get, well, let me know. And, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to scout around today and tomorrow pretty heavily. And, uh, you maybe touch base back. Yeah, with you, you really bring it. some unique insights yeah. to your background yeah. and, uh, into it. So I'd love to get your opinions awesome. on it. All right, Brad. And good. obviously looking forward to seeing you tonight. Yeah, at the Pink Sox meetup. Yep, we're gonna. So please, if you're on Twitter, if you're not, get on Twitter and make sure to follow Nick. And his Twitter handle is at Nick. Is Nick is in PDX. N I C K I S N P D X. Right. So yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you. And please go to PinkSox.life tells the story there and it tells the story and go ahead and take a look and you will see pictures of tons of people including an astronaut at exactly. NASA. Yeah. so fantastic <laughs> and hopefully we're going to get a chance to see each other again maybe at one yeah. of the later launches yeah. so that'll be fantastic well thanks so much Dave, for coming right. in.
Thank we you, appreciate it. You're Thank welcome. You. Thank you, buddy. So there you have it. We had Nick on, and we've now got Dennis Robbins. The meetup tonight is at 5 o'clock. It's at the Arena, O-R-E-N-A, Sports Bar. And uh, if you actually uh, follow Nick or look at Pink Socks, with hashtag Pink Socks, you'll find the address, but the Arena, O-R-E-N-A bar at 5 p.m. We'll have a Pink Socks meetup, and I know there are going to be a ton of people there, obviously including Nick, Greg, and myself. And so the address for that is 6159 Westwood Boulevard, at five o'clock again, the Arena O R E N A dive bar. It's six one, but it's a sports bar. It's actually a good place to go. So we're looking forward to it. And there's a ping pong table. And there's a ping pong table. Six one five nine Westwood Boulevard in Orlando. So uh, looking forward to it. Our next guest coming in will be Dennis Robbins, a good friend of mine. As we uh, watch Nick head on out, uh, incredible insights. And what's happened with the Pink Sox movement and the tribe has just been unbelievable. And the people I've met through it, their stories. What they're doing in healthcare, how they look at healthcare, is fantastic. It's just a great, uh, a great idea that has just blossomed into something really incredible. Thanks to Nick and, and uh, him starting that whole thing. So I'm now joined in the booth here at Conversa Health at the Hymn 17 Conference with Dennis Robbins, another good friend of mine. So welcome, Dennis. It's good to have good you to here. Good to see you, Fred. Pleasure. Yep. So you've been around healthcare a long time. You're walking around Hymns. What you thinking right now? Well, you know, I think people hopefully are starting to get it, that we need to make some changes in terms of our, our thinking about how we approach engagement, getting people involved, and not doing the same old, same old. So that's pretty exciting. So you're obviously an engagement, I would call you an engagement or maybe the engagement expert. Well, so I talk about next-generation engagement. Yeah, next, so, so tell us what you mean by next-generation engagement. And, and what are your thoughts? What, I mean, everybody says, oh, we got an engagement platform. We're engaging people. But are they really? So it's, <laughs> so, kind, of, so it's kind of cool, Fred. About three or four years ago, I wrote an article in a pharmacy journal, a well-known pharmacy journal, and coined the term patient-centric. And, and when I saw the manuscript and saw sort of what I was doing, or <clears throat> what I had done, I realized I'd made a mistake, that I wrote about the wrong thing, that it wasn't about the patient at all. Because if we want people to change our lives to add years of our life and life to the years and to live a better life and to be more engaged with doing the right thing, uh, we can't approach them as patients because patients are subservient, they're wounded, they're vulnerable, they're passive, they're on equal footing. But as persons, which is the default, if something matters to us, if it's sufficiently important, we can do anything. So I think the approach, and, and it's also crazy to think about those hours a year that I spent with interfacing with the health care system as a person can't define me there's 24 hours a day seven days a week three six five days a year most of my time is not spent as a patient but it was a person so i'm really if the poor patient were to evaporate i'd be perfectly happy so, so let me just dig into that a little bit because it just made something go off a light bulb in my head that may or may not be correct so does that mean we should be renaming the patient-centered medical home oh yeah absolutely absolutely um, I work with uh, some of the folks involved with PCMH, and I was the head of a task force for PCMH 2.0 for the military uh-huh. health system, and actually talked with the people in the uh, PCMH cooperative and said, you know, they tried to get a push, but, you know, kind of couldn't do it. And the fear is, is, well, are, are, we, are we sort of uh, undermining the physician who believes so strongly in the doctor-patient relationship? And not really. 
um, because that's who we are. And we want, as clinicians, we want people to do things to get healthier and to reduce their morbidity and, and, uh, and um, some of the risks that they have. Right. How do we do it? I mean, we know that we have 300,000 health apps out there uh, to try to gauge people in terms of their health care. We know that from uh, the AMI study that of those 300,000, the average penetration over six months for sustainability is about 0.06%. Not working. So what do we need to do to personalize it, to make it matter to you and I, where it's going to make a difference? To not only instill and sustain those behavioral changes, it's great positive lifestyle change. So everybody, it's really easy to always find what doesn't work, and we, you, you just, and, which is great. We, we now know, what you, as you point out, the statistics you just said are unbelievable. 300,000, 0.06, engagement in six months. So what does work? What do we got to do to make something work? So I think there's, a, there's some technology we have at our disposal that can be very, very helpful. I said, first, first of all, uh, we need to rethink a little bit the whole population health game. Okay. Because... There's things that I can learn as a person from the population. I'll give you an example. Um, 81 milligram aspirin. Mm-hmm. Um, people take it because they can reduce cardiac or stroke death. If we look at big data and look at 100,000 lives, in 100,000 lives, we can save one person from cardiac and stroke death by taking that 81 milligram aspirin. Right. We kill four from gastric bleeds. Now, if we have an enteric aspirin, we won't kill that one. So we need to understand, that, and we can learn those things from population health that can make us live longer and better. But we have to get access and share that data where we can find that out. So there needs to be a greater interplay between the person and the population for population health to really work. Yeah, so it, it kind of gets to this point that I've always said population health starts with one. I mean, at the end of the day, it's changing one person. It's impacting one person to ultimately drive the population. If you forget about that, then... Yeah, I'm looking at all this population health stuff, but you got to change one at a time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so are you seeing any exciting technologies or stuff within the space that you think is better for engagement? So, so one of them is I think that if we're going to try to work on sustainability, important, important issue, we need to sustain people as they are. Uh, when they wake up 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 5 in the morning. So 24-7 continuous opportunities for engagement. Now, we don't have enough care managers, and we have different training levels with care managers and case managers. So I think that artificial intelligence blended with natural language processing, we have intelligent AI, is going to be the answer of how we scale and meet that need. Yeah, because it's interesting when you talk about that. So I'm thinking back to the day when I launched my disease management company, and originally it was the patient saw the doctor, and then six months later, a year later, maybe three months, maybe five years later, the patient saw the doctor again had that interval. So all we really did was we dropped in some additional interviews, of, it, intervals of contact points, which were the nurse or a community resource coordinator or somebody. So maybe it was monthly, maybe it was weekly, maybe it was quarterly, but it was way more than just the doctor. Sure. But as you said, how do you then scale that to the next level? And that's where technology comes yeah, in. Because have to ultimately, technology. it could be, as you said, 24-7 available. Yeah. I, think we need to, works. I think we need to make another shift too, Fred. We, one of the things we say about our system is it's not a healthcare system, it's a sickness system. Correct. And I thought about that, and I don't think it's a sickness system. I think what we do is we treat episodic, uh, acute episodes of unhealth, and then we make them, take them out of that unhealth, and then we forget about them like you did for however long it is, three months, six months, or whatever. I think we need to shift, and even prevention is prevention of illness and disease. 
I would like us to shift to a model that really thinks about health. That is readiness, resilience, endurance, balance, hardiness, and mindfulness. So let me ask you this. How many of those statements are in anything to do with medicine? Zero. Or maybe a little balance. Maybe a little balance. Maybe a right. little balance. Right. But but you're you're not you're talking about balance in the broader sense too, right? Not just your physical ability to balance, but balance in your life. In the broader life, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Interesting. And so it, you, you touched on mindfulness a little bit. I happen to love, enjoy that. I got involved in some mindfulness. I'm using some apps. They're great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's been some work done, some studies on mindfulness for smoking cessation and eating. They're showing some pretty positive things. So have you seen anything in those areas? I mean, are, are, are people looking at these? I think people are starting to look at that. Uh, one of my colleagues, Walter Reed, uh, is integrated in the Department of Medicine, uh, uh, mind-body medicine, uh, yoga, um, uh, uh, guided imagery, so on and so forth. And now I'm starting to see people using virtual reality to deal with things like isolation and loneliness and uh, to kind of engage people. Um, there's a company that's working uh, um, with uh, reducing pain through mm-hmm. using uh, using a, a, a VR glasses. Really? Yeah. yeah. And so what is, how does that work? So they, they distract people from their pain. They get them focused on something else. And what kinds of images are they using? Well, this oh, is let actually me just knocking down, um, almost like you'd see with, um, gosh, some of the gamification stuff where right. you, 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 you move your head around to knock mm-hmm. down uh, these various targets. Uh, and they're doing an RCT now, and they believe they've seen a reduction of 29% of pain across the board. Wow. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff. That's so neat. we're really breaking down some of the walls to look at some other ways of taking some of what's at our disposal and use it in different ways. And part of the problem in the past is we thought that our company, our solution, our ecosystem was the only way to solve a problem. We're starting to understand if we partner with the right folks and blend together a lot of ecosystems, create a comprehensive platform, then and only then can we begin to address some of the problems we need to address in a bigger and better way. Yeah, I think that's a critical point that people are beginning to recognize is that Everyone has these point solutions or broader-based solutions, and we've typically gone out to just add my solution. But, but if you integrate those, you then really can begin to meet the needs of the person and, and touch them with whether it's a pain thing or access to education or their medical record or a coach. And, and so it does require beginning to look at how do we use APIs, et cetera, to integrate these platforms and share the data and, and create a seamless experience for the end user, the person. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if we look at one of the big uh, areas that people were concerned about with uh, quality metrics and quality reporting, uh, dealing with hospital readmissions, uh, if you look at readmissions for CHF, you will find that people are not coming back because of the primary complaint. They're coming back because of anxiety, gait, uh, they have troubles with transportation, babysitters, you know, whatever. Right. It has to do with the person. We need to go back to the person. It's all about the person. Well, that's great. So any final thoughts around HIMS? Uh What are you looking for? What do you hope to find here? Uh, oh, potential collaborative partners, uh, seeing old friends, uh, and surviving, uh, getting my steps in. Yeah, well, you can get plenty <laughs> of steps in walking around this place. It's rather gigantic. Um, well, thanks so much, Dennis, for Thank joining you, us. Thank you, really appreciate it. Thank you. And I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the conference, and we'll get you talking to us again on another show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. And there you have it, Dennis Robbins. Joined us here at the Conversa booth at HIM 17 Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. How do we do? Yeah, thanks. Oh, thanks.
the conference. Um, the, the next one is uh, going to be Tom Chamberlain at noon from EdLogics. Uh, Greg's joining me back in the booth, so let me. Dennis Robbins check. doesn't believe in Twitter. He just told me that. But we there did an, we did anoint him with a pair of pink socks. He is yes. he, he is does a new he, member of the pink socks he, tribe. He's a LinkedIn guy, right? Well, fantastic. So anyway, that was a good interview. Well, thank you so much. It's very, great very to talk good. to him. So we're new stuff. we're uh, we're here in transition. Our next guest is uh, from Healthogen, the Aetna sub Healthogen. And there's a little bit of backstory about Healthogen. Uh, since we have some downtime here, I thought I'd offer it up. Uh, two ER docs, two very thought were thoughtful, forward-looking ER physicians, ED physicians in the Denver area, uh, Wayne Guerra and Peter Hudson, formed a company, and the principal asset in that company was iTriage. And apparently the holding company or the entity who held the rights to iTriage was a company called Healthogen. So you might recognize the name Healthogen because Aetna purchased the the company probably, what is it, 2017, maybe 29, 10 time frame, somewhere, somewhere around there. I'm not exactly sure. But the idea of Healthogen, I think they were originally the group headed by Chuck Kennedy. No, Charles Kennedy, and um, I can't remember Chuck Chuck's Chuck's name. But uh, do you remember Fred? Do you remember who ran Healthogen? Chuck uh, Charles Kennedy ran the Accountable Solutions Group, and it was we interviewed Chuck a bunch of times. At any rate, I'm sorry, Chuck, if you're listening, I forgot your name. Actually, I didn't forget. I can't recall it. I'm having a senior moment. So it was the Emerging Businesses Group, something like that. That was the division inside of Aetna. And upon uh, closing the deal with acquisition of Healthogen, uh, Aetna rebranded that entire group, the Healthogen Group. And it was supposed to be an independent firewall company, essentially uh, separate from the mother house, Aetna, and provide services across the board that were essentially payer neutral in terms of their client base. And a number of years later, Aetna Healthogen seems to be a thriving business with Medicity, Active Health, uh, and a few others. At any rate, Peter and Wayne are the inventors of iTriage. Their company was called Healthogen. Aetna bought them and rolled all their new emerging and alternate uh, business uh, the fa- that family under that under that group. So, uh, Louis Sangini, I think you pronounce his name, mm-hmm. is uh, going to join us from Healthogen. We'll get an update, and that's it. Other than that, it's kind of uh... so. Unfortunately, our booth is placed right across from a company that has cupcakes and lots of them available for people to come by. It looks like they're probably going to get a decent crowd. With that, in, in, in Touch Health, that's In Touch Health uh, Cupcakes. Uh, Yulin Wong is the uh, founder and president of In Touch Health. We've talked to him a number of times in the different venues, including the American Telemedicine Association. Pretty innovative guy. He was the former president of the ATA, I think, back in 2015, succeeded by Reed and I don't know who the current president is over at ATA, but yeah, in touch, 
uh, it's a robotic mobile uh, telehealth solution. Telehealth solution, right? Yeah, exactly. So, did you have a cupcake? I haven't tried one yet. You haven't tried one. But okay. since the show's going right through about two hours, I think I'll probably use that right. sugar rush right, right about right. an hour to go. I, I, I may mosey over there. I just want to make sure I'm checking my text, make sure we haven't gotten a ping from either Doug or Lewis. That's okay. You can get back to your producer's role. Okay. I'll see if I can hold down the fort right. here in the studio. And so, as I said, I, I did get a chance uh, yesterday to attend a few conferences. I went a few sessions. I went to one of them that was on... Uh, Developing a uh, a dashboard for population health uh, in the population health segment. Uh, I know a lot of people got a lot out of that uh, presentation, particularly those who had built some simplistic types of dashboards in Excel, et cetera. And uh, these companies, they brought up some interesting ideas, though, that I thought were worth mentioning today. Um, and, and one of them was the fact that um, you really need to understand um, how people see visualizations up the point that 8% of males are colorblind, so if you have color charts, obviously, you may want to use some of the feature sets in Tableau or the others to, uh, that actually have color sets that work for individuals like that so they can see the differences. I see now I've got Doug out there, so I'm just going to grab Doug by the scruff of his neck and get him over here to sit down, and we'll, we've got about three minutes uh, before we uh, begin to talk with the folks from HealthGen, so with that... Doug, uh, how's your morning been? Wow. Him 17. <laughs> you know, we have emerging technology keeps changing. So it keeps emerging. It does. <laughs> so and are you saying anything emerging that may come to fruitful life? Actually, I'm very interested in voice, these virtual agents. Yeah. Right? Uh, Alexa, play music. Alexa, turn on my lights. Alexa, Google measure this. my blood Bing pressure. That. Went, went, uh, yeah. Uh, Cortana, Cortana. That's right. Years ago, actually, before either of those are out, I bought Ubi. UBI was a wall right. plug-in thing. And uh, kids and my wife looked at me, and at the end of the day, they were probably right, a little early for that technology to go out. And I understand they're no longer making that technology. But now we have the big boys in with, with Amazon, Google, et cetera. Um, and uh, it'll and be Merck, and, so Merck and, and just Merck. did an so, open challenge, really, on voice and health. Wow! And, and so it's is, in the Amazon booth. Sixty nine uh, is it sixty nine sixty nine? You yeah. you go by the Amazon booth? Not yet, did you but see I'm the open have to go check it out. Yeah, the open challenge. Open challenge. How can you use? How can you create voice apps that support health? And well-being. Oh, I have some ideas. This may be something to work on here, Absolutely. (laughs) That sounds great. Yeah, and it was interesting because yesterday at the, um, in in one of the sessions we went to, they were talking about one of those little virtual agents, which was like a little robotic doll that had a screen in front of you that you talked to. And and then it responded back and it could ask you, how are you feeling today? You know, are you tired? So why? And begin to gather that data as you talk back to it. And I asked them one question. I said, you know, in terms of engagement, do you have any – it's only been out about five or six months. Do you, are you seeing people say, get it out of my house? I don't want it anymore. And they said of all the ones they've sent, that's happened once, just one time. So pretty interesting how people – if you think about it, we're already engaging with everybody else through a device. And who knows if on the backside if that's really a person or not. And we're really used to talking to people. We now, are. And, you know, we've been talking to our phones. Sirius, Google that. Alexa, play music. Yeah. But they're always listening. 
That's they're creating and converting voice into data. Yes, they are. All the more uh, data for behavioral targeting. So Excuse remember, me. support of support. what you really need to buy now. Yes. So, so check out your settings for all of your apps, and you may want to change some of those to only when using <laughs> versus all the time. <laughs> real quick, and I have not looked at this. The real question is, is Alexa... Alexa is activated by saying Alexa this, Alexa that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to turn it over to you, Doug, and we'll let you continue on. This is my co-host, Doug Goldstein at eFuturist, and we're at the Conversa booth here at HIM 17. So go ahead, Doug. I have uh, Louis Sanguini, who's uh, kind of a world expert in people. Hi, Doug. How are you? Great to meet you. Likewise. Welcome to uh, the Conversa booth, Hims uh, 17, where we're broadcasting live. So uh, people are listening now, and they'll listen later. So, uh, yeah, Conversa is a very innovative company. Uh, They are connecting with people, and they're extending the uh, visit to beyond the four walls of the clinic and the doctors, and they're really an extension of the doctor's practice. So doing very innovative things. So Fred and I were just talking about this concept of voice, right? How do we create the next gen- generation of apps that exist within Siri or Alexa or Cortana that help support health? Um, but why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about your background? Because you have a deep understanding of improving human health through both pharmaceutical agents and interventions, but other... So just give us a snapshot of what you've done in your career. Yeah. Well, thanks. So I spent um, most of my career in pharma, worked uh, almost 17 years with GlaxoSmithKline, then transitioned over to MetaPharmaceutical, which is a smaller concern focused in respiratory, then to a services company. Uh, then I made my way into uh, Health and Outcomes, which is a division within Aetna. So what I'm speaking about now is my opinion. It says I'm not uh, speaking on behalf of Aetna, uh, just to make that very clear. Um, but thanks for having me in. I think what we see is uh, incredible um, uh, opportunity for pharmaceutical companies to um, better align their products and services with the needs of the market dynamics of today. In other words, if, if there's going to be uh, incentives by CNS to pay payers based on star scores and value, we've got to find a way to learn more about what the value is that may exist within the products and services within pharma companies. And really they have had the setup to allow them to gain an understanding of how to unearth the value. So what we're, what we're seeing today is um, pharma companies doing what they can do to break down the silos within their companies. And they're all different stages of doing this, but it's an important step. It's really important for us to come Leverage the resources within pharma, the health economics and outcome research professionals, the medical clinical folks, as well as the commercial and marketing and brand folks to help understand what it's going to take to serve as we move forward in a more value-oriented arena. So 17-plus um, years ago, I wrote a book called eHealthcare. And about that time, I gave a talk to the state pharma group. And I have a slide, and I can dig it up. It's like it's service beyond the pill. And what in my opportunity to work with you and hear what you're talking about, I believe pharma is focused on service beyond the, on the pill today. 
It may have taken 17 years, but senior-level leaderships down through significant parts of the organization are trying to figure out and help gather the data and the experience that can really help us deliver value across a longitudinal instance of care. Yes. We're not just seeing, oh, it's a diabetic, take this drug. They understand the role of diet, exercise, sleep, and they want to figure out how to slow the progression of diseases. Absolutely. I think it's there are no bad guys in the healthcare system. We have to be positive and motivate people and figure out how to move from a transaction infrastructure into this longitudinal episode of care or really an episode of relationship. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, it is no surprise to me that you wrote that book 17 years ago, because <laughs> you do have an eye for what, it, what, what is needed to, to help evolve the way we are today to where we need to be to, to realize much, much greater and better results as we move forward here. So, um, you know, it's interesting. The, the, um, the details that are necessary to understand how to identify what produces value. Um, there's no one way to do this. No one sandbox that can be developed. There's no like recipe. There's not a roadmap. Right. It's really individual, and um, there are different needs for different disease conditions. And you're right. Going beyond the pill, being service oriented, is absolutely a must today because it's not about determining whether a product should be. It's where and when it should be used. What coordination? How many comorbidities? How many medications are they on? What age are they? Where are they in the country? What type of plan are they in? May all give rise to what it is that's important for treatment. And if we can affect optimal treatment at the right time, right place, right patient, my God, the, the opportunities are through the roof. And I think we've been in this world of just, you know, it's, it's fee-oriented. It's give every patient this drug until we know better. Um, and, you know, we just can't continue like that. So what's, what's really interesting, oh, there's Sue Woods. We're going to talk to Sue in a little bit. But what's really interesting is the secret sauce among all this is the care team, the doctor, the support network around the person, the social environmental characteristics. And it begins, I think, the secret sauce, regardless of whether it's a stethoscope, a drone, or a digital watch, Fitbit, it's that somebody cares. That's right. Your doctor cares, and the secret sauce is the doctor. And companies like Conversa um, extend that conversation and the other types of interventions where we look at the, the whole person relationship really extend that conversation. No question. I mean, 85% of the expenses. And relationship. Yes, yeah, so, sorry to interrupt. 85% of all expenses are associated with the providers and the health systems. So you are absolutely right. It does start with the provider. It ends with the provider. We've got to find ways to help the providers um, and to elevate their level of performance. And we can do that. There's so many great technologies. Here at Hims. there's no shortage of good ideas and great technology. It's about the practical application. Because to help the physicians use technology easily and productively is the big, big challenge. So anyway, thanks for having me in. Sure. Hey, Sue. Come right, join us. Thanks, Lou. You got it. Thanks for joining us and sharing uh, how we're building relationships, crossing the barriers of providers, life sciences companies, medical devices, and your experience at Healthogen uh, in, in paving the way for value-based
quality care for everybody. Thank you. And thank you for having us on. All right. Take care. Sue Woods, come join us. Good. We're, we're, we're live. We hear your perspective. You got to sit. Otherwise, you're not in the frame. I know. You're not coming to the front? You're not going to join me? Talk about your high touch, high tech? It's not an it yet. Well, just talk about people. Got seven minutes. Yeah, just come on over and sit. Um, Sue's getting shy on me. So, Fred, do you want to come back? Because uh, I thought Sue was going to sit down with me. Okay. Okay. Hey, Lou, come on back. So, Sue Woods, you've been a leading physician at VA for a number of years, and now you're uh, off innovating on your own. And you know people, and you know this whole next generation of how to support people in getting healthier lifestyles. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> well, we were talking last night. Uh, what do you think the key principles are of high-tech, high-touch amidst all, you know, we've got Fitbits, we've got Apple Watches, we've got everything in the digital therapeutics, the answer. we got Voice Alexa. I think you have some clarity on that question. Well, I think you have to back up, figure out, and I have to go forward. <laughs> you have to back up. <laughs> well, you have to back up and first uh, try and figure out um, how to foot traffic, so how to figure out, like, physically where people are. But I don't mean, like, buildings, but how to fit into their life. Okay. How to connect with them. So, you know, the phone is... Uh, Phone is now the cell phones now become the the number one uh, in my opinion persuasive technology that we have because it's with people all the time. And then you have to ask the question, what you know, how are you going to meet somebody's needs? So you have to ask people what they want. Well, they want their information, they want their data. So figuring out a way to connect. They want to get their information like their health record. Right, right. You know the doctor's notes, open notes. That's a really key piece of information. They want to get their data. They also want to give you data um, when it's needed. They don't want to have to fill out 14 pieces of paper form. So that's sharing data is like one of the high value things. Um, The other is uh, transactions. So they want to be able to, you know, the things that they normally do on the phone or in person, you know, make an appointment, pay a bill. So just simple transactional uh, things, and then they want to connect with us experts. I would say, you know, that's the the triple aim for meaningful use for patients and patient advocates is shared data, doing transactions, and then connecting with experts. So you have deep expertise working with veterans of all ages, male, female, served many, served the country in many ways. Um, and I think your experience with veterans applies to kind of all populations. But as you speak, I think it's like, well, okay, 
millennials are so much more technologically literate than seniors, right? But I don't think you I think you have some unique perspectives to say that's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true. And you really have to go and talk to people. You make assumptions a lot of the time. You know, my older patient isn't going to send me an email or they're not going to go online or my younger patient right. actually found uh, that that just doesn't always happen. There's older people who want to connect and know how to do that. They have the capacity to do that. There's younger people who actually may not want to do that. So the first thing you have to do is really ask what the assumption is that you're at. And, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. And it's really unique, right? You can't make generalizations like seniors don't want to do this or millennials want to do this. We can't make those general. Does it come down to an N of one in trying to connect with somebody and find out what's going to motivate them to improve health? It does, but you also, you've you got to do the N of one and the population. Okay. So, so, but don't think of populations in terms of diseases. I mean, you know, still in this mainframe medical, you know, cognitive right. map where we, you know, divide people into cardiology and diabetes and hypertension, and yet that's the wrong way we cut the population. You have to ask yourself the question, well, are we reaching people in the rural communities? Do they have access to broadband? Do they have access to cellular? We know, um, you know, the mobile uh, mobile cell use is rising really rapidly. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't even have these phones. And now, you know, we're reaching six, seven, eight out of ten people. And how everybody uses it is different. How you it's use really it, different. what how many apps you use. You know, I just use it to make phone calls and maps. And other people use it for music and Ubers and Lyfts. And well, we know, we know, we know. Even if you don't have a smartphone, if you have, you know, a feature phone, people are using uh, texting a lot of times. So again, I. I think texting and messaging is the is our untapped is our untapped almost the least common technology. common denominator. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's still a few. You know, the digital divide is narrowing, but in some groups, it's actually getting a little bit deeper. So, uh, a more vulnerable population. We have to pay attention to our built environment to make sure that we cover those folks. I, I really appreciate you joining me on the fly because I, I have so much respect for the quality of of your insights about how to connect with our veterans who've served our country and, you know, have sacrificed either their lives or a significant number of disabilities and to figure out how to help them connect and make, live more meaningful lives, your work at VA over the past number of years. Um, and I know you're bringing that to the private sector with your high-touch high-tech initiatives. So however we can help you in making a difference in people's lives, let us know. Thanks. Thanks. Great to talk to you. And there you have it. Thanks so much, Doug. Uh, This is Fred Dolsing and back in the booth here at Conversa Health at HIM17. And I'm joined by a good friend of mine, also an incredible entrepreneur and businessman, Tom Chamberlain of PharmD. And uh, I've known Tom for a number of years. Tom has a company called AdLogix, and for all um, full disclosure, I am an advisor to AdLogix. Been doing that for four years. Been very proud to be associated with the company and excited to have you here, Tom and Hims. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks, Brad. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great. So 
give a give our audience a little bit of background on EdLogix. You know, we featured you on Pop Health Week, but we've got a lot of people who uh, may not have heard of the company. So you founded this about five years ago now, I guess. Yeah, a little and over so- four years ago we founded it. And we founded it based on the, the premise that uh, we needed to do something to improve low health literacy. We know that low health literacy is a one of the biggest predictors of outcomes. You know, as much as $238 billion a year is attributed to low health literacy and the, the prevalence up to 90 million Americans suffer from low health literacy that could prevent uh, conditions from occurring. And, and low health literacy is defined as the, the individual's ability to obtain, process, and understand basic health information and services oh, yeah. so that they can act upon it and make better healthier decisions. So we're trying to address that problem. Right. And as you think about it, you know, we, we've talked about it a number of times and we have all these companies here. Yeah, cool stuff, cool app, this, cool that. But if you're trying to change individuals' behavior, the base of it, really, that block that you need first is health literacy, right? Absolutely. You know, we need to have a core understanding of what they need to know in order to get the change that we're looking for. So without education, without understanding, it's difficult to really achieve whatever change we're looking for. Yeah, and I know we did a webinar with uh, uh, former Governor and Secretary of HHS Tommy Thompson, Chairman of the Board of the company, and uh, Dr. Russell Rothman from Vanderbilt, Cynthia Bauer from the CDC. And Cynthia made that interesting comment at one point in that webinar, which really stuck with me, that we've known for 30 years that handing out pamphlets doesn't work but we still do it. But you've really taken and recognized that and said, well, how do you do this with technology, which is what everybody uses today. They use their phone, they use their computer. So tell us a little bit about the, 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 the program, the EdLogic's platform itself, the app, what it's got, gamification, et cetera. Sure. I mean, our premise is we want to transform the way consumers learn about health. And we know that learning has to be fun and engaging in order to, for it to be successful. So we set out to build a, a platform that incorporates uh, interactive multimedia, game-based learning, innovative gamification principles, and incentives. We need to incent people to want to learn. So we built a platform that, that makes learning fun and engaging, and we're able to measure and, and assess the impact of our program. But uh, it's all about the engagement and making people and activating them to want to learn about health. And once we get them in, we continue to put new features and functionality to bring them back to the site so through daily scratch cards, uh, through weekly workouts, through monthly challenges, and a number of different areas. So we have competition and teamwork and a social component of sharing information across an employer organization or, or any organization that uses our services to to improve the health and, and education of that population. Yeah, and I can tell you that even myself using it, and I use it a bit, I'm the second leading scorer on the all, overall leaderboard. So I've been cranking that thing for a long time and, and, and gone through, and each, there are new stuff coming out all the time. Um, and originally it was focused for employer groups, and you've got self-insured companies buying it and health plans buying it and looking at it. But there's a whole need for children too, right? So can you touch Absolutely. on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. In addition to the employers, the municipalities that are, lar- that are large employers, whether it be city, uh, county, or and we have county, big counties using it, or state government. So we, there's a big op- opportunity in a number of areas. But <clears throat> you mentioned children. Uh, we we know that in order to affect uh, health literacy on a on a national scale, on the long term, we have to really. It's a generational issue, and we have to start with 
the children and young, young adults and, and adolescents. So we've been focusing our, our efforts on working with organizations that have a focus on improving the health and wellness of children in that population. So we can take our innovative game-based strategies and our content and address issues like childhood obesity or nutrition in the, in the young and use those children as the avenue into the parent and into the families to really change the dynamics of that family and use them as a conduit to bring important information about vaccinations and about other critical health issues, cyberbullying issues. There's a number of things that we can talk about. We're working with organizations like Vanderbilt University. Mm -hmm. I just got off a call with them where their team is going to be making sure that our appropriate, our information is not only appropriate literacy level, but is it, how is it appropriate and designed for children? So working with child uh, adolescent psychologists to really get at behavior change in that population. Right. And you've always seemed to be bringing in, you bring in the experts in the different areas. So you've got experts in health literacy, experts in gamification, experts in things. And that's really kind of made it interesting. We know kids play a ton of games, but as we've learned through these experts and everyone talks, I've got a gamified platform, but there are some games that work and for educating. And there are some games that are just games that really don't. So can you talk about the difference in how you've looked at games in the EdLogix platform versus like the shoot 'em ups and things like that? Sure. And it's really important that, uh, that these games really deliver education of important health topics. So it's got to incorporate evidence-based health information that are important for a population. And then it's got to be fun and entertaining. So we call it almost edutainment. We look at it as edutainment. Simple games that we're able to do like a tic-tac-toe game and, and having people play against each other. So they're not games that are going to be video-based with uh, you know, Warcraft and they're shooting things down, but they're simple, fun, engaging, and very addicting. At, at up to 75% of the points earned by an employer organization oftentimes is going to be through game-based learning. Right, and it's not only the games that you've put in, like um, Factor Myth or these other really cool games you play, but the site itself is a game platform, right? Right. The entire site is from onboarding. When we onboard individuals, we assess their health literacy through a game-based application. And so, is that health literacy assessment an actual tool or something that you're using? Is it a valid measure? Sure. Tool? It's a valid tool that we use, and we put it into a game format where people answer questions and about reading a food label. You know, we can understand are they illiterate or are they are they adequate in their literacy level or are they what they call enumerate? A component of health literacy is numeracy. And so we can ask people and by understanding, can they deal with numbers? If you can't deal with numbers, we can, we can target, educate, and personalize the experience to help bring them up to speed and give them a baseline understanding of how to numbers dosing insulin and other types of, uh, of issues. So we, we gamify it from the beginning of onboarding all the way through the end with points, leaderboards, uh, leveling up and, and a number of different other strategies. And you mentioned something just in that last presentation, we were the first time we got to it, that last statement you made, personalization, critical issue. Talk about that. Yeah, we've, we've always known that personalization was going to be a key part of our platform. And now we have various levels of personalization that we're, <clears throat> excuse me, through personal attributes, uh, onboarding that you may say you're interested in prostate cancer vaccinations, we can deliver that information to you. But also your age and your gender is going to be a different experience based on your, your uh, demographic data and uh, your psychographic segmentation. So in the onboarding process, we assess psychographic profiles of individuals so we can better communicate based upon whether they're a, a direction taker or a balance seeker or different profiles with very good accuracy so we can communicate, whether it be text, email, 
or, or voice uh, to communicate with them based upon their persona. So we're personalizing that experience. And so that psychographic information, that's personas you talked about, that really came out of the retail side, right? And it's now being applied to healthcare, which we've seen how you use that expertise to get people to buy stuff. Well, now you want to use that same knowledge and expertise to get people to change their behavior around something else, which is their health, right? Absolutely. That was a company patient bond that came out of Procter & Gamble executives Uh that understood consumer marketing. So we're taking consumer-based marketing principles and applying it to healthcare, which is something we should have been doing a while back, but I think we're on that path right now. And then being able to take demographic data, as I mentioned, but even biometric information, taking Mm -hmm. information and put it into our warehouse so we can deliver a metabolic syndrome program based upon their profile, their lab values. So So you'll take their clinical information and say, oh, wow, this person has metabolic syndrome or based on their, and we're going to then feed them that content. Exactly. Push it right to them. Excellent. And we're even looking at prescribed education. So developing physician driven educational programming where a physician will prescribe a diabetic module for you. So when they log in, they'll be prescribed for you by your doctor. Mm-hmm. One of the big issues that everybody faces is startup. And, you know, we've got startups here and we've got the huge companies here is you building this platform. How do you ensure it's scalable? So what have you done around creating a platform that can really go national as you're trying to do, or internationally yeah. even? No, and that's and our goal is to go worldwide. Uh, we're, we're building this platform, and um, we are working with Red Hat. Red Hat is a partner. They sure. have very no innovative. Being a young company, we can have leading, in, leading technologies. We don't have a legacy platform that's been there for 15 years, so we can buy the, the latest and greatest software, and we're using something OpenShift, uh, OpenShift plat- container platform. Uh-huh. And it's uh, containerization. So it allows us to take our platform and put it into containers so we can cost-effectively scale it uh, in in our AWS cloud. And uh, so scalability, reliability, redundancy, and security. And security. Right. So all the security. And we're working with a leading organization like Red Hat to really allow us to focus on what we do best, which is educate and engage and not worry about the plumbing. So the, the software really allows us to scale and, and have a highly secure environment to uh, deliver that kind of information. And I think they actually did Red Hat feature you at a conference with some other leading uh, IT executives or government people? Yeah, absolutely. The Red Hat Government Symposium. I spoke in Washington with the uh, my speakers uh, alongside of me. I was in between the, the head of technology for the IRS and the head of technology for the U.S. courts. And not both bad of them for were, a small company. You know, and, 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 yeah, not so little because it's growing, obviously. Right, exactly. But yeah, yeah, we are, we're in good company. They're featuring us. They did a case study on us, and we're working closely with them on on reviewing our architecture and and participating in the design and development for the long haul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know we've got a few minutes left. One of the end of the day things is, did it make a difference? Are there any? outcomes from this. So can you talk about some of the outcomes from the platform that you've gotten from some of the er, the companies that have been on it for a while? Sure, yeah, and, and we're continuing to evolve in that, and we don't have clinical outcomes yet on the, the degree that the educational uh, delivery platform has had so much impact on cost outcomes. But I think if you say outcomes, that, it's important for people to recognize that there are, in population health, there are leading indicators, and there are lagging indicators. So leading indicators are those the ones that you can usually get, like, 
okay, how many people enrolled? How many people used the platform? How many people sustained using the platform? How many did this education module? Um, how many came back? And then you begin to see over time those changes. And ultimately, obviously, you want to see changes in behavior a little further down, maybe six months, a year, two years, and then obviously changes in utilization and cost. And those could be one year, two years, five years. So, you exactly. know, people haven't been on the platform for long periods of time yet, but you've already got some outcomes. Right. So we're going in that direction. Our outcomes that we have now is that we have very high engagement rate. Many employers are well over 50% with very little incentives. If wow. we increase our incentives, we think we can get 80, 90% engagement and participation. They're using it on an average of 3.6 visits per month uh, on an average. And those visits can be either on the computer on an iPad or on any phone, right? Exactly. The platform is just... Yeah, it's mobile responsive. It's, it's uh, available on any device that's connected to the Internet. It has to be for the millennials. Uh, but uh, we, we know that we're making populations smarter. That's a great Absolutely. outcome. And people are willing to invest into this technology if we can show that we're making them much smarter from baseline to post-intervention. So uh, with Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, with an organization we worked with there, we increased learning on sleep health by 46%. Wow. So we can show that we're making your employer population smarter. And with a self-insured employer, they need smarter people making better health care decisions because they're responsible for the claim. Right. And as we talked about at the very beginning of the show, that's the base. If they, know, if they don't know it, how do you expect to see the rest of the behavior change after that? But if you can set the base, then you can begin to build off of that. Absolutely. We see ourselves working with organizations that have great technologies, great products, but you have to have education, and they have to understand as a baseline. Right, and your system is linkable and connectable. So it, it's interesting, you know, and I would tell anyone listening to the show or watching it later, if you've got a platform that's looking to ultimately connect with patients, employees, or people in a community, or somebody using your drug product, you should take a look at this platform as a means to serve as that piece of that broader vehicle you're setting up. Absolutely. It's paramount to the success of any, any intervention and, and any product or services. It starts with basic education, which is why we started the program. I knew that as a clinician, people weren't addressing the basics of education, and uh, we think we have a hot product, and we're excited to, to be moving out there and partnering with some of the world's you know, and the nation's uh, leading organizations. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for joining us today. Thank you, and, Brad. Uh, Appreciate this it. This is uh, HIM17, and it's Health Innovation Media with uh, Tom Chamberlain, the CEO, founder, and a PharmD from uh, EdLogix. So uh, great. Go enjoy the rest of the conference. We'll be catching up later. Thanks, Brad. Looking forward Take to talking care. to you for yeah. further. Thanks. Good. Good. So we're, we're continuing here live. I think our next show should come up in any minute. I'm trying to recall, Greg. Who do we have coming? Oh, it's Kave from Accenture. So hopefully he'll make it on over here. We'll see if uh, um, any minute Kave should be here. Last year we talked to Kave Safavi. It was a great show. We had a lot of insights. Obviously, Kave is uh, the uh, Global Managing Director of Health for Accenture. And uh, I've gotten to know him over the years through a number of groups. And he really is an insightful individual and an incredible speaker, having him, seen him keynote a number of conferences really brings some unique insights. So, Doug, you want to step on in while we wait for Kave? Yeah, sure. So, in the last um, 30 minutes or so, have you discovered anything new here at HIM 17? Or am I putting too much on your plate? I've stunned Doug. That's amazing. Well, we talked about voice. We talked about voice. I think what's new is that we have this constant wave of innovation, and now it's running up against, and we kind of had 
call it eight years of whether you like um, the Affordable Care Act or not. We had eight years of kind of expectations, markets like certainty. Yep. And now we have a whole new dose of health policy uncertainty coming in. But I think the move to value and outcomes is a universal for the private sector because we have this we have the issue of managing chronic diseases in a consumer society of an aging population. And the answer doesn't necessarily rest in a pill. It rests, the solutions to reduce costs and improve quality are multidisciplinary costs. And I can go through specific examples in lung cancer surgery and others. It just doesn't depend on an app or a technology. It depends on integrative solutions to support health that reduces costs and increase quality. So it's not just lower prices on stuff. Correct. Um, so I'm going to drop a big one on you here. So, and this just hit me. So I was listening to NPR the other day, and they were interviewing this guy who was talking about the groups of organisms on the earth and how there are these six major groups of organisms. And he has now written that, Technology is in and of itself the seventh grouping of organisms. And really interesting that we now evolve with and it evolves with us and changes us. He talked about an early example was a spoon, which changed your diet and changed our physicality over time as we eat things and stuff like that. And now we have these new technologies. And so they're not actually separate, but another ecosystem that is part of our larger world. Right. It was an interesting way to look at it, and you kind of see it all around here, and it exists. It's its own space. It's a space we move in and out of and stuff like that. And it's a virtual extension, right? How many? Look, we're holding our phones. Yeah. They're always with us. They'll become our key if they're not already your key. Yeah. And You've got withdrawal syndrome associated with it, all of that oh. stuff. So we touched on a little bit earlier AI. Artificial intelligence, and there's many flavors of artificial intelligence. So explain that. Well, the question is, what do you mean by artificial intelligence? And is it the ability to respond to a question? Is it the ability to play chess? Is it, you know, many forms of machine learning and predictive algorithms, but that's not, predictive algorithms not necessarily artificial intelligence. Correct. But if you apply it to a system that maybe is interacting with an individual, then it becomes an artificially intelligent system based on that, what it is telling the system to do to help that individual in that intelligence. Most people don't find it today as an autonomous intelligence, that we've created an artificial intelligence. It's really an augmented intelligence, much like a search engine. I mean, it's a search engine on steroids. Well, at the end of the day, I think Turing, the Turing test is the key, right? If you could be interacting with something through a device or something, and you could not recognize that it was a computer versus a human, it passed the Turing test, right? Yes. Alan Turing. Yes. So how how close are we? I think we're a ways, there are elements of artificial intelligence, whether you call it predictive analytics or whatever, that are in place now, but they're not autonomous. So let me give artificial you an example intelligence. Of one. Let me so you... we're exactly 10 years, two months, three hours, and 60 seconds away from true artificial autonomous intelligence. So that, that's a great to know that. So I'm going to mark that down in my calendar. So I used to use and still do a little bit of a system called Amy, 
which is an artificial intelligence scheduling engine. And what you do is you emailed somebody and you copied Amy and you said, hey, Amy, please arrange this appointment for me with so-and-so. And Amy then the back, mm-hmm. as a computer system, would just sit there and arrange it. And I, I, I did it probably 60 or 80 times when I first used it. And people were responding back, hey, Amy, thanks. Well, hey, Fred, I noticed you got a new admin. How's it working out? Literally, but it was a computer system. And it was incredible at scheduling your meetings. And so the one person, I brought stuff to the meeting, I said the one person who picked up on it, because at the bottom I was using the free version, it said this is provided by X.AI, I think, as an artificial intelligence, was Esther Dyson. And Esther sees it and goes, Fred, is this really an AI bot? I said, yeah. And so she said, I'm going to test it. And it had used her ED Ventures and had misspelled it. And she sent me a, sent in a note and copied me and said, Amy, my company is you have misspelled the name and it spit back and corrected. And Amy said, Oh, my apologies. Here's the corrected name of your company. We've now put it in your meeting and da, 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 da. So as somebody talked about yesterday, our point examples of AI are smaller, not this huge thing to AI your whole health, but to AI certain areas where you begin to interact with an artificial thing to do it. You see that? Correct, but if you ask Amy to play music for you, no. it won't do that. Right, it's a point solution. It's a small it's AI It's an element of artificial intelligence or a, a learning system. So we're a ways it's away. It's a learning from, system. It's a we're a ways away from creating an artificial PCP. Correct. But small pieces of that. But perhaps we have the PCP managing diabetes could be AI. Your interaction with your well, and so you and take Wa- a piece of it. Watson is a wonderful example from IBM, right? It's very good at question and answers and playing chess. But you're gonna, in order for it to curate and be clinical decision support in diabetes or cancer or joint replacement, you have a level of complexity in each of those therapeutic areas that are very, very different. And you Correct. have context and conditions. And there's a ton of learning to create that specific application or artificial intelligence that supports clinical decision support in a way that makes sense for people in the care so, team. So in my mind, we're going to rip that it doesn't get the big picture, and I'm going to celebrate that it got a small piece. <laughs> and there you have it. <laughs> so the answer is artificial intelligence is here, but in slices. Correct. Uh, and it's being applied. And, and being we applied. see it across him 17. Yeah. And Amy, you're, all right, the real question is, are you still using Amy? Um, well, actually, I still have it, and the reason I is they went to paid model. Yes. And I, and for myself personally, I didn't want to pay that much. I can use it for five se- scheduling sessions a month now, Ken, but I but I can't use it unlimited like I was doing before. What, so would, be, what would be the monthly license fee? If it were under ten bucks, I would do it. For me, under ten dollars, that's right. as much, much as I pay no, the I license. Outlook, my whole Microsoft. Right. This week. So how much is Amy for? That's well, it's thirty nine a month, I think. And I wrote the CEO letter, and they came back and said, this is what we're going with. We understand, but we think this is the value. Now, I don't know how they're doing it, right. but I think it's a great idea. All right. I think the next yeah. guest is here. So next guest is here. Fantastic. Well, my next guest is uh, Henry DePhillips, the chief medical officer from Teladoc, and he'll be joining us in just a second. And uh, I believe this will be the last interview of the day, and we'll finish this session out. Sorry that Kaveh Safavi wasn't able to join us. We had a nice fill-in from Doug. And again, this is Fred Goldstein, the co-host of Health Nation Media, and I'm here in the Conversa booth broadcasting live from Him 17 Well, thank you so much. Hey, Henry, pleasure to meet you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Today. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thanks for coming over. And you are the Chief Medical Officer for Teladoc, I am. correct? Yes, sir. 
So give us a little bit of your background and how you kind of went in as a doctor into that space. Sure. And then, uh, let's talk about Teladoc. What sure. Doing? Thanks. Uh, my background's three phases. Uh, private practice of family medicine for a decade. Uh, moved into the health insurance space. Learned a lot about the financial side of the healthcare industry the, for eight it years. It used to be some guys on the dark side. Yeah, I the dark there side. too, so I have to admit, uh, honestly, I didn't think it was so dark, but it was yeah. interesting. Learned a lot. My goal was to make it a better place, and I think that worked okay. Um, and then for the last 13 years, have been a serial entrepreneur in healthcare information technology, which has been just fantastic. Being able to you know, use technology to make certain processes within healthcare more efficient, more user-friendly, um, and, and cost savings has, has just been great. So that's, I enjoy it. Well, then this will be really interesting because this morning we were talking about, and we've been talking about this for a number of years in the show and others, is all of the stuff here, and I always say every one of these is just adding another layer. It's the onion. Well, that IT didn't quite fix it, so we'll build another one. On, we'll put it on top of the other, and we'll connect it, and we'll build another one. We'll do more off of that. And so and each one adds cost. But you're actually talking about reducing some costs, reducing some complexity, and make it more efficient. So it would be great to get into some of it as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our company, Teladoc, has been around for uh, about coming up on 15 years. Uh, so not as new, uh, although the adoption of telemedicine and the adoption within our company has been really the last four or five years has been extraordinary. But you're right. We actually I had a conversation on this very subject. A lot of new technology in healthcare tends to increase costs. Um, you know, we, we create – this company was started based on an HR perk, right? Giving employees access to a doc without having to leave work or home if they had to. Um, It wasn't until much later that we started to see, you know, the improvements in access, um, the the reduction in cost, the cost savings to those who are responsible for the cost of care. I'm the chief medical officer of the company, and it still blows my mind how much money is saved by giving folks an alternative. Uh, I think we've proven pretty well that you can offer very high quality care uh, remotely. And, um, and, you know, we're also uh, disrupting the traditional healthcare delivery system by making it a little more consumer friendly. And I'm okay with that. So, Teladoc, I mean, everyone understands it's uh, doctor access via mobile or internet or something like that, right? Yes. And so, what sort of range of services do you provide in terms of doctor services? Great, great you're question. You're not doing surgery. Not doing surgery <laughs> yet. No, just kidding. Um, Robotics coming, um, right? <laughs> just saying. All those video games may pay off. Um, right. So as chief medical officer of the company, my responsibility is quality of care. And probably the single most important aspect about the quality of care in a telemedicine offering is to define the subset of medical problems that can safely and accurately be diagnosed and treated with the physician and the patient not being in the same place at the same time. That's the key. So you set up those fences that we're going to do these services through this, but if they're asking for that, we're not going to touch that. That is correct. We call them guardrails. So we have a number of guardrails. We built the business on the treatment of common, uncomplicated medical problems. So sinusitis, bronchitis, urinary tract infections, things that are day-to-day issues that, that folks have. Uh, we have since you know, expanded. Our board tasked us a couple of years ago and said, you know, what else can we do to create value with our client base? And so we rolled out a longitudinal comprehensive behavioral health program. So you can have an initial diagnostic psychiatric interview, therapy sessions, medications, although not DEA-controlled substances, uh, through that program and get a complete course of care remotely. Uh, dermatology is a slam dunk for telemedicine. Smartphones today have incredible high-definition cameras. Uh, that's an asynchronous program with a two-business-day turnaround on diagnosis and treatment. Um, we have a sexual health anonymous uh, uh, testing instrument program. We have a tobacco cessation program. So as you listen to the list, we, we have chosen those things that lend themselves really well to technology. Let's talk about one of the areas of interest to me. I spent about six years running psych hospitals, 
and also did a first disease management program for Medicaid for persons with schizophrenia. For the state of Colorado, wow. we, did high, we did depression and bipolar disorder as part of our DM programs. So behavioral health, you mentioned the initial assessment, ongoing treatment, and so who are the different professionals? Do you have different levels of professionals in there? Yes. What, how you uh, yep. So in order to build, and, and really learned our lesson when we went to put the network together, you know, we have a 50-state program, uh, providers who are physically present and licensed in all 50 states, and we wanted it to be a multi-layer program for behavioral health, right? So initial, your initial intake is with a psychiatrist. Ongoing sessions could be a psychologist, PhD psychologist, non-PhD psychologist, social worker, other types of therapists, marriage family therapists. So we do have a range of providers uh, in each of the states to, to, to uh, provide services. Um, but typically, the course of care is an initial diagnostic intake interview with a psychiatrist, and then as part of your treatment plan, there may be a series of visits. You can schedule all of those. You can select the therapist you want to work with if they have a special interest in and the is area that, that you all need. Done all virtually. Well, we, we offer consumers a choice, right? So we have a world-class audio-video platform. Um, we have uh, high-definition photographs for things like dermatology and skin lesions, uh, conjunctivitis, uh, and then we have phone-based care. And sometimes therapy using the phone is, is A, what consumers choose, and B, if they have a behavioral health issue, behavioral health issue where they may want to avoid confrontation, avoid eye contact, maybe not sure. be willing to go for an in-person visit, people sometimes are more forthcoming. Well, that's what I was about to get to. So we all know the big stigma, you know, associated with, with mental health. And you don't mention it. We don't talk about it. Holy moly, we're going to bury that problem. We really need to, hey, it's all okay. Come on up. So, you know, it, and it gets to the point where people are even afraid to park their car at the lot you because are then they know oh my gosh, they must be going there. Somebody must be thinking, what's wrong with them, right? So do you see that? But you're now delivering it virtually, are people much more likely to say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stick with it. We do. Uh, not only do we see um, people who are using the service, I think more than they would if it was in-person only, but we're also seeing some problems uh, that, that people are more hesitant to go for in-person care. You know, the telemedicine for behavioral health, as you know, has been in the prison populations across the U.S., not years, but for decades. And that was out of necessity, right? Because right. it's just difficult to get psychiatrists to go there at the time of need. Um, and so there actually is some data that demonstrates that um, patients uh, with behavioral health illness may be a little more forthcoming with certain diagnoses if they're seen remotely rather than they're sitting across Excellent. from their therapist. Excellent. And talk a little bit about, um, obviously, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're about costs, but you're also about improving outcomes and quality. So how do you monitor that and how do you measure that and report on that back? Yeah, so I inherited a world-class uh, quality program and have, I think, taken it to the next level. So our quality oversight is the most rigorous program I've ever been exposed to in my 30-plus years in healthcare. Um, so we have uh, five different quality management committees, each staffed with community practicing telemedicine physicians who are independent, um, who give us sort of an outside-in view. Uh, we have one for our general medical program, one specific to pediatric care, one for the dermatology program, one for the sexual health program, uh, one for the behavioral health program, that's five. And then we also have, and they implement the quality program. We also have work groups under each of those committees which are who are continually designing new components to the program. Okay, what are we not looking at that we need to look at? What other outcomes do we need to look at? We have a subcommittee of the board that is overall the quality program so we are visible and being watched carefully all the way to the board level and we have some really good quality folks on the board senator bill mm -hmm. frist uh, is the chair of that subcommittee uh, helen Carling from the national 
Paul sure. Yarm is a member of that committee and others. So, so the oversight is, is very clear to the very top of the company. Um, and then we have uh, had to develop out of necessity clinical practice guidelines for telemedicine uh, conditions because there are no off-the-shelf guidelines that are the caliber that we need them to be that take the remote nature of the encounter into account. So we develop the gu- guidelines for diagnosis and treatment, but we also incorporate the issues that are raised when the patient and the doctor are not in the same place. So do you provide like a workflow for the doctor? Is that, and is that how you ensure inter-doctor liability across the system? It's, we're in a little bit of a transition. So the guidelines form the basis for the training program, and they also form the outline for the uh, quality oversight program. Uh-huh. So those are the, those, that's the standard that all of our providers are held to. We don't force the use of the sure. guidelines, um, but they're available online using the technology. They can be displayed right in line with the visit. And on, from a quality standpoint, we look for a practice that remains within the standard of care, the range of standard of care defined by the guidelines. If somebody goes outside of that, then you know we're on it. Because all of the documentation, both on the patient side with the creation of the electronic health record that's required before each visit, as well as the documentation that the provider enters into the system, we have a database that that all drops into, we have a reporting layer, we can actually get almost real-time quality oversight if somebody attempts to prescribe, let's say, a DEA-controlled substance, we know about that that day or wow. at the worst the next day, much, much faster than, than most of the industry. So let me ask you a question. You mentioned these physicians are independent. Yes. So if a physician's in a practice and let's say they want to get involved in some of this, can they get go to you and say, hey, I'd like to be a doctor with Teladoc and do this? Yes, if they meet our credentialing criteria. Obviously, so our yes. entire 50-state network of well over 3,000 providers are all private practitioners. They have a bricks and mortar practice. They're under contract fee for service to work for us on a part-time basis. We have no employed physicians and can who they, do visits. Can they provide your service to their current patients? We It's funny that you picked HIMS to ask that question. Um, we actually have a licensable version of our platform that okay. has all the capability, but we actually sell it now. We have about 120 hospitals and hospital systems across the U.S. using it. And what they do is they have their doctors and their patients that go through their system using all the capability. We'll back them up with support services if they need it, but it's a it's a turnkey product for any large provider organization to use. Oh, yes. fantastic. We may have to talk about that a little bit later. So um, the other question I had, so the, the flip side of that, your product is being purchased by employers, insurers? Yes to both. Uh, so our core platform, which is our turnkey solution, right? It's so completely self-contained. Uh, we started selling to employers. We now have, I want to say, over 6,000. Um, we sell to health plans. We have, I think, over 30, uh, many large health plans at this point. Aetna is probably our flagship, many blue plans and others, some Medicaid plans. And then we recently started selling to provider systems and integrated delivery systems, hospital systems as well, both the core platform for their employees as well as the licensable platform for their patients and their docs to use. Well, fantastic. Well, that's great. Well, it's really been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'll be over there to check out the booth later at some point. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. And there you have it, uh, Henry from Teladoc. Uh, He's now being inducted into the Pink Sox tribe here by Mr. Greg Masters. And uh, we've got one more coming up. Yes, we have Dr. Uh, Danny Sands. Leading uh, physician. Danny's been one of the leaders in participatory medicine, and uh, he guides a number of companies such as Conversa in doing the right thing. 
Happy New Year. I guess it's already February. New Year. Jeez. <laughs> You're running behind. It's good to see you. You're good looking the you. same, you know. Thank Everybody you. else ages but us. Well, I think how does that happen? How does, how does, how does that it, happen? I think it's diet, nutrition, exercise. I think we need better and, glasses. And social. I we think, need better glasses. Oh, better glasses. <laughs> it's a novel solution. But I like that. You know, if we just convince ourselves, we convince each other that we're never aging, I think it's perfect. So give us a quick update on participatory, participatory medicine or health because helping people... Um, be healthier in a consumer society where we're all aging that's wrought with chronic diseases is absolutely essential. It is essential. It is essential. I mean, the society is a really interesting point right now. We have, um, we're growing our membership. We're growing our uh, corporate uh, partnerships. Um, at the society, you know, so we are really focused on transforming the culture of healthcare, really changing the culture of healthcare to be one in which, uh, we're inviting patients into the process more, right? There's more of a partnership. Rather than thinking about healthcare as a, a car wash where patients are the, the car and they're dirty, drive through the healthcare system, getting health sprinkled on them and coming out somehow healthy, that doesn't work. And we, that's what's right. giving us the healthcare system we have where we have patients who aren't engaged in the process. They think that things can just happen magically and it just drives up the cost of healthcare. It's not satisfying for the car or the car wash. What we want to do is change that culture. Well, it's really how to interact with people in a high-touch way. Not that we haven't cared and there hasn't been a lot of personal contact yeah. in the past, but some of that's been dehumanized by electronic health records, perhaps? Oh, those electronic health records. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that are getting in the way. And I think that, you know, on the, on the one hand, you could say the electronics is a problem. But on the other hand, it's an opportunity because it allows us to open up your information to you in a way we could never do before. It would be impossible to like, make it easy right. for you to look at your paper record, but now, hey, we can do this. And, and if we want you to be a better partner in your care, if we want to be collaborators in your health, right. Right, you've got to be able to do that with information. You've got to have the information. We can't deprive you of that. So society is all about trying to change that culture. And we focus on four areas. They spell out care. All that right. was an accident. Care. It used to actually spell out R C E A. So and, C. And, yeah, and so 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 E patient Dave, who of course you know, yep. he said, "Wait a minute, guys, that should spell out care if you just rearrange <laughs> this." So yeah, the C is about uh, a conversation, community, and uh, so all of our, we have diverse stakeholders across uh, that healthcare continuum who are having conversations all the time about challenges and healthcare opportunities. So that's the conversations. C. Conversations. A advocate, influencing Obviously. public policy. Uh, changing the conversation there. And then the R is research. Research, we don't do research. We do published research in the peer-reviewed journal of right. participatory medicine. And I don't want to scoop it. I don't know when this is coming out. But we're going to be uh, announcing a very exciting, very exciting thing, which is a... Um, no, no. I, I, I don't know when our media blitz is coming. Okay. But, but you'll be the first to know. But it's, it's a collaboration where people are going to have a place to go. Members are going to have a place to go where they can learn the best practices and the, uh, the, oh, best, marvelous. Data, the best data. In, a uh, convening in, point. A physical, not a, not a convenient virtual. Point, but it's like, how do you understand literature? You know, what do you find the best right. information about this, the best uh, studies? Um, and then the E is, e is education. Oh, experience. I was going to say experience. experience. Yeah. It's education. It's a, because how do we change a culture unless we're, educa unless we're educated? The 
people are providing health care, the doctors, nurses, and so on, but also we need to, right. in a parallel way, educate you, the patients. We're going to educate patients and family caregivers. So those are the things we're focused on. And we have things that we're doing in each of those areas. Uh, education, we're developing a curriculum for healthcare professionals and a curriculum for patients. Um, so that's pretty exciting. So can I go back to A, which was um, advocacy? advocacy? Yeah. I think advocacy is critical because what we have to realize on both the policy side and the organizational side is all of our systems, all of our human training is for transactions. Yeah. I mean, our doctors, our care teams, our professionals, our IT systems, our reimbursement systems are all based on transactions. Yeah. It's not the relationship or the experience. It's not. In fact, um, um, as you know, I'm the chief medical officer of Conversa Health, which is to my left. But uh, um, at Conversa Health, we really take advantage of that. So it's about about engagement. But right now, as you point out, there's no thinking about this longitudinal engagement. So... Um, you know, when our founders, Phil Marshall, used to say, the standard of care is not to care. Like when the patient's Correct. out of the office, yeah, right. you know, we're not doing that because we're all about that transaction, right? Bring the patient into the business. That's what people got paid for. That's how we train people. Exactly. It's not that doc- I think doctors are the most, some of the brightest, and the care teams, the nurses, they care about people. They went in yeah. to make a difference. You know, the goodness is at the core of the of the health and medical mission. Exactly. But whatever sets of reasons for reality, we ended up with a disease care system based on transactions. Yeah. Now, did you say a disease care system or a diseased care system? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that if we're going to increase the capacity for taking care of more patients, if we're going to improve quality and reduce costs, we've got to think differently. We've got to think beyond the visits. We've got to be less transactional and more about uh, what uh, what Rashika Fernandapool at Iora Health calls a continuous uh, healing relationship. I think that's what he calls it. It's good, right? Continuous healing, healing relationship. relationship. Yeah. CHR. Yeah. It's much better than EHR. It's much better. Infinitely <laughs> better. No offense to all you vendors out here at him. We heard it here first. Continuous right. healing relationship. Yeah, that's Rashika And care. And care, right? And care. Four pillars. How do people get in touch with the society? And how do I join? I I did join. I thank you. Thank you. How do organizations? What? Um, um, Yeah, uh, participatorymedicine.org. Okay. Dot org. Go there. We're we're in the one of the another exciting things we're doing is we're doing a total website redesign. So our website maybe isn't as pretty as we want it now. It's going to be great in a couple months. Um, Go to participatorymedicine.org. Click on join me. If anyone has any questions, particularly. um, you know, corporations or organizations who want to really play a role in this, right. reach out to me, Danny at drdannysands.com. I'd love to talk to you about how you can, uh, we can work together. Well, any um, big insights from him, 17? Because we've been to a few. It's big. That's <laughs> big. my insight. <laughs> this, is, this is day one. I was at one, day, one night of receptions and, you know, half a day so far of this. So I have no insights other than that it's big as heck. I do have one observation that only my Facebook friends saw, but I'll share it with you. You know, when you got to the uh, big uh, reception last night, yes. they had that um, woman dressed in white flowing things yes. flying around, right? It was like a fairy. So I was greeted by this fairy. And I realized that that's a metaphor for health information interoperability. <laughs> so that's my, my only insight right now. 
But uh, it's really it's good to see uh, you know you and a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues uh, from over the years. I've been coming here for many, many, many years. So we're wrapping up uh, him seventeen live feed for Health Innovation Media. Fantastic. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow at eleven. Great. Good to Tuesday. see you. All right. That's a wrap. Thank you, Health Information Media and Doug. Dr. Stan. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.